0: to The Math of You, a podcast about formative media from when we were young. I'm Lucas Brown. On this, our 115th episode, I'll be talking to Jody Troutman, writer and webcomic artist, about The Wizard of Oz books. Along the way, we take a massive tangent about Grand Admiral Thrawn, we discuss Oz's glorious trans princess and the creating of your own version of the MCU through sheer bloody-mindedness. We'll finish the show with our signature cocktail and let you know how you can become a guest on The Math of You. We join this conversation already in progress. All right, Jody, so for those who may not know you, why don't you say who you are and what makes you a beautiful and
1: unique snowflake? (laughs) Well, I use a lot of conditioner and I'm very cold. (laughs) I draw comics. I've drawn them for an extremely long time on the Internet. Um, And, uh, oh, no, I froze. (laughs) That's okay. It's because I'm I'm, I'm a beautiful snowflake and I froze. (laughs) It's ironic. My primary thing is I've drawn webcomics for an extremely long time, starting in the very early 2000s. And a lot of people probably know me for that, and they probably forgot me for that. but Then they remembered me again. (laughs) And I recently, I say recently, it was like, seven years ago transitioned into comic books instead because web comics were swiftly becoming a thing that was not where I necessarily belonged because I couldn't draw comic strips anymore and what I wanted to draw as comic strips wasn't really what people were reading it hadn't been that way for a while so anyway, yeah I draw comics the main web comic was Lit Brick, about English literature my most f- prominent comic book project was the Gospel of Carol which is a parody of the New Testament more or less it's very heretical. I'm told people like it. It got a good review in a couple places. <laughs> and, you know, I'm just piddling away on whatever comes up. Because, yeah, it's interesting.
0: We didn't actually meet through the webcomic. We met through a number of mutual friends and good internet people. So I'm intrigued. I've actually not known much about your webcomics and how they started out. So what was your kind of initial step into webcomics. I mean, judging by the internet, I presume it was something involving Mega Man sprites, if I think back far enough.
1: (laughs) Oh, no, I predate the Mega Man sprite, please. (laughs) Bob and George cannot lick my boots. (laughs) Journey with me if you can. The year is 1999. We still really like Third Eye Blind. The boy bands were really starting to take off. Backstreet was, in fact, back. (laughs) And webcomics had basically began... I mean, like, a couple of years ago, maybe, but we were still dialing up, and it was still a novel idea to have comics on the internet, and to start to read a lot of the comics that existed at that time. I was primarily inspired by Sluggy Freelance, to my eternal shame. <laughs> Sluggy apparently exists and looks exactly the same as it did in 1999, which is truly impressive, actually, the consistency. To draw a comic for that long and not get better is, like, wow. <laughs> wow. Sorry, I'm a bitch. That's a thing. (laughs) You're fine. It is allowed. Okay. But then, I mean, there are a lot of comics kicking around like that. And like, you know, some of them are still going. You know, David Willis was still making comics in 1999. He's one of my friends now. And that was so fucking long ago. You know, just a lot of my friends are still going, surprisingly so. But yeah, so in January 2000, I started it myself. It was very bad. It was called Sporkman. It was a superhero parody because I was reading a lot of Wizard at the time. Because I was in high school. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and I was into comic books. After I graduated high school and realized it was extremely bad, I shifted and drawn like more. I started broadening my horizons. And that's when I started doing a lot of comic strips that primarily featured women, mostly women, actually. And I realized that drawing guy characters was boring and dull and because they're dumb and I hate them. <laughs> and just, you know, time went on. I just did lots and lots of comic strips, like literally thousands of strips. My comics were daily for years. And none of them are on the internet anymore <laughs> 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 because I scoured the earth and some of them hung around a little bit. Sporkman came back in a different form as like a gag comic that had nothing to do with superheroes and that I left on the internet because it delights me, although it delights almost nobody else. The last major comic strip I did was Litbrick. It was inspired by the fact that I was an English major and had lots of bricks of literature left over from classes. So I'm like, I'm going to read these cover to cover. And I did, because I'm an idiot. But as I read it, each individual thing, I drew a comic strip about it. And that's that insane comic strip, Litbrick, that still exists at litbrick.com. That actually had a pretty dedicated cult following, and I still piddle around with it from time to time. Eventually, web comics started becoming not a bad thing, just not really a thing I fit into anymore. And it's at that point I got really into comic books again. I got really inspired. I started listening to Ajax a lot, as so many of us often do. You've had them on the show before. <laughs> yeah. That's one of the primary reasons Like, I really got into, like, you know what? I can make indie comics like all the cool people I'm listening to on podcasts. And so I jumped into it. I started making comic books instead, and I haven't really looked back. The beauty of that was that it was an outlet to make even more friends. Like, comic books brought me to so many people, you know. A few years ago and they're some of my best friends now and that's really exciting for me that whole community our whole particular community surrounding independent comic books is just really great even though a lot of people do not care about comic books anymore So <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean that's where i am now i'm doing a lot of my own comic book work i fell off for a while things got really busy i got a very busy day job that i will not talk about but it has <laughs> distracted me from making my own work although i started lettering stuff which is very cool i'm like kind of mark stack's house letterer now that's cool i'm working on a lot of really cool books that i'm like excited just to have my name on them and a lot of them aren't even out yet but that's super cool so i'm just really excited about the future of that so yeah i make comics i have for a while my old sporkman comics well the reboot are online at sporkman.com uh Litbrick if you like literature and you like extremely stupid jokes and you like Pat Benatar you should go to litbrick.com if you want to read any of my comic books which include the Gospel of Carol which I said earlier, is I feel like it does a disservice to call it a parody of the New Testament because it really, it took a lot of effort and research to make that book. And it has a lot of heart to it as well. It goes into a lot of apocrypha and it goes into a lot of, like, Carol's not just a parody of Jesus. She's like her own person. Sorry, it means a lot to me, that book. So uh, you can find all my... Other comic books, including stuff that got kind of halted midway through and will continuing soon at uh, troutcave.net, because I'm Trout Man. This is my Trout Cave. It's a dumb joke. <laughs> if you prefer to have all your comics in one place, you can also just search me up on Comicsology. All my comics are, in fact, there. I make less money, but it's convenient for you, and I understand.
0: It's funny you talk about web comics, the sort of the turn of the millennium. I can recall going to the Marvel website. And being able to look at this fancy new thing called Dot Comics, which was a pop-out Flash comic book reader that allowed you to read. Let's see. What was it? It was the 9-11 episode. Mm, Dr. Doom crying. That's the one. Yeah. (laughs) As well as I think like what the first two or three trades of like Ultimate Spider-Man, Ultimate, Ultimate Fantastic Four, all of them. Ultimate X-Men as well, as bad as that was. But the thing is, I was young, and I didn't realize how bad it was. So I just lapped all that up. Th-
1: that's how comics work. Yeah, you read the bad ones early.
0: It's one of those situations where it was like, I really loved them until I showed them to a friend who had read more comics than me. And like I showed him a cool thing that I thought was cool. And his first response was, wow, they're hurting for artists, aren't they? <laughs> and I'm like, uh,
1: I, I don't know. Uh, we should go do something else. <laughs> that's the problem with the 2000s is that they were the dark ages. <laughs> yes, they were. <laughs>
0: Our mutual friend JoJo is currently looking at some of the the, the atrocious Chuck Austin X-Men stuff. Oh, Lord. And I told him, I was like, this is the stuff that I used to do a 40-minute walk down to the city. And while I was waiting for my then-girlfriend to get off work, I would go into King's Comics on Pitt Street and read as much of these as I could before they kicked me out. At which point I would go home and read the synopsis on (laughs) uncannyxmen.net. And that's how much I was invested in these bad bad
1: comics i know the feeling i was reading a lot of comics in the 2000s too i read all of civil war oh lord did i read all of civil war and yeah it's a uh, it's it's growing pains the problem with the 2000s is that it's like the 90s are bad but they're fun bad and like the 2000s are just bad like ugly bad like repulsive bad
0: <laughs> you know you see like one of those like, I don't know if it's like a, sometimes a rebellious publisher or a rebellious band or something where it's like, we don't care about the rules anymore, man. We can do whatever we want. And it's like, yes, you can. Should you, though?
1: Rules are good, actually. <laughs> it's my hot take is that rules are good. You should follow them. <laughs> my hottest take is that Jim Shooter was right. Oh, wow. About basically everything. <laughs> Listen to Jim, everybody. He knew what he was talking about. He knows how to make a comic book.
0: <laughs> I was like, do I have it in me to make a joke about the Beyonder pooping? And I thought, not today. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you don't even need... To, it's, just, it's an inherent joke. You don't have to actually make a joke about it. You just have to say the words, the Beyonder learns how to poop. And you're like, that's the joke. We laugh.
0: <laughs> we laugh because we know. The funniest thing that my kid is doing at the moment is that if he doesn't want to do something. He has, I think he copied it from me once when I was in the shop where it's like, I'm like oh yeah, we're not doing this, not today. And so we'll be like in a store. And I'm like, oh, I have to pop in and get bread. We're out of bread at home. And he looks at me and he, and he points to me and he's like, no bread, not today.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: With like the totally serious inflection, oh, oh. like thumping his finger down on whatever surface is nearby. And I'm just like, but we need bread. No bread. Not today.
1: The most Claremontian declaration of defiance.
0: (laughs) This is not happening. Not (laughs) No way. Not no how. (laughs) It's great. Four-year-olds can give that sort of heavy inflection to just about anything. It's amazing.
1: Oh, yeah. I can never have one myself, but I love them to death. (laughs) I have a nephew that I haven't seen since the pandemic started, but he delights me. He says words I don't think are words, but he certainly thinks they're words.
0: It's the most important thing. That's the most important part. He sounds very serious. Often wrong, never unsure.
1: No. (laughs) (laughs) All
0: right, Jody, well, let's start with the basics then. Whereabouts did you grow up?
1: I was born in Hamilton, Ohio in 1983. I don't know why I'm being that specific. I never lived there. I spent my entire life in Phoenix, Arizona, which is considerably farther from Ohio than you'd think. Because, I don't know, my parents decided they didn't want to live with their families, which is brave of them and cool. I'm a desert rat, grew up in Phoenix, lived here my entire life, probably will never go anywhere else. It's really not so bad. You think it's hot and dusty and kind of ugly and brown, but it's, it's beautiful in places. we got lots of stuff, great food, relatively affordable. I grew up here my entire life. Just, that's all there is to the Secret Origin, really, I guess. Typical nerd shit, straight-A student. Never studied for a test, just breezed through school. Realized that was not a great methodology for real life after school.
0: Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> the mindset of trying to study, looking down and being like, well, I remember all of this. So it would not behoove me to study again, I guess. I guess. <laughs> a mindset I'm familiar with.
1: Went to ASU, Arizona State University, got an English degree. Have not ended up using my English degree for literally anything other than creating comics, which is a gift unto itself. <laughs>
0: I have friends whose entire uses of their English degrees is getting mad about Ezra Pound. Bless them.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: Because I have it on good authority that fuck Ezra Pound.
1: We all have our niches. Like, as a result of Leprack, almost, as a comic, I got super into specifically, like, medieval English, Middle English literature. Basically, England from Jesus time to, like, the 1800s is my wheelhouse. <laughs> pretty big wheelhouse jody i'm not gonna lie (laughs) in england specifically and it's not as big a wheelhouse as you think because there are several centuries they just were not writing things down (laughs) but yeah i got an english degree because uh i love books that's always been there whether they're comic books or whether they are novels like i have an encyclopedic knowledge of the star wars expanded universe that no longer matters but i read all those books because i can't stop reading
0: Oh, so you can tell me about that Thrawn guy.
1: Well, he is canon now, so it's okay.
0: (laughs) Well, part of him is canon, I've heard. I mean, all I've watched is, I've watched Mandalorian, I've watched Rebels recently, which is good, actually.
1: It is good, actually.
0: And then the last season of Clone Wars. And so now I know what I think is a bunch about Thrawn, and that he's cool. I am terrified to walk into any online circle and think that I know shit about Thrawn.
1: Okay, so (laughs) let's talk about Grand Admiral Thrawn. Okay, so... Grand Admiral Thrawn, he's very smart. He's like Sherlock Holmes smart. That's his entire deal. He's the smartest man in the universe. I'm pretty sure he's just like Timothy Zahn's like OC Mary Sue. Like I'm the best person in the universe. No one can ever defeat me. He never got any respect because the Empire was racist. And then he came back after the Empire had lost. Like after the Emperor was dead. He came back like five years later and was like, wow, this galaxy sucks. I can make it better because I'm super smart. And then he smiles tightly, because that's all he does in the text. It says, <laughs> he'll think of something real smart, and it'll say, like, he smiled tightly. <laughs> like, I don't even know what that means.
0: I'm picturing just like this, like, pretending to be polite, like, small, rictus kind of grin.
1: And the genius of E.U. Thron is that not only is he Sherlock Holmes, he has a Watson. He's got this kind of old, grizzled English gentleman, Stardust Destroyer commander with him. Named Captain Paleon, he's the guy that's like, blah, 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 blah. How could you possibly know that, Grand Admiral Thrawn? And then, you know, that's the setup. And then Grand Admiral Thrawn's like, oh, well, you know, because blah, 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 I'm very smart. Except his hook, instead of studying individual people when they walked in, he would study their art.
0: Oh yes, this was in Rebels too. I remember this bit.
1: Yeah, they pulled that into Rebels, where like he would have examples of artwork of a civilization. He was like, "I can tell from the way they painted this painting that there's going to be weaknesses in their defenses right there. Blow them up." I'm like that doesn't make sense.
0: <laughs> Something I really liked in, in Rebels that they did do is that for all that he has a ton of knowledge and he you know can explain all of the history of the art and stuff, it's specifically from a colonizer's mindset. Yeah. And, like, the fact that they were specifically calling that out as him being like, well, I'm taking it from the people who it belongs to because they they couldn't appreciate it on the grander scale that I could. However, the people I'm surrounded by are also idiots. And so I'll explain it to them. And it's like, well, or maybe you don't fully get it and you can't because it's not yours. And that's all implied and occasionally outright stated. So bless Dave Filoni for putting that shit in.
1: Yeah, and that's why... He gets a lot of shit, but I think he's an interesting character because he sees himself as above literally everything and everyone. And that sets someone up for a fall. But, I mean, the problem is that he doesn't fall most of the time. So it's like, there's no payoff. He's just this super awesome guy that no one can defeat. The wild thing about Thrawn is that there's now more, like, canon Thrawn than there was EU Thrawn. Oh, okay. Expanded Universe Thrawn had, like... Three books and some short stories. Canon Thrawn, he was on that fucking cartoon. He's got an entire book series literally named Thrawn that's just about him. (laughs) (laughs)
0: I always thought that would be challenging where it's like, you've got a series that is based on a villain, where your villain is your main character. It's like, how do you maintain that narrative tension if you know your villain has to be there for the next book, you know?
1: What Zahn has done is actually... Surprisingly, these are good books, and I feel like no one knows that they're good books. Because first, they're like prequels. They take place in the Chiss side of space, which is unknown to the main Star Wars universe. And it's like this own little country of space, where he's like a commander that literally everyone hates, like trying to work his way up the ranks. And because everyone surrounding him is worse... And because everyone hates him, he becomes a sympathetic character, even though he's a huge douchebag, which is... Kind of a great (laughs) trick to pull. And it's also a series that is so divorced from the larger Star Wars universe, it basically feels like an original sci-fi series just starring this character you know is going to fly a Star Destroyer eventually. (laughs) So, shockingly, I can recommend the Thrawn trilogy, which I believe the last (laughs) book of which is soon to come out.
0: (laughs) There you go. Bold statement. Thrawn is good, actually.
1: Thrawn is good, actually. I have lots of hot takes. Look, the expanded Universe had problems. There weren't any women in it. There weren't any people of color in it. There certainly weren't any trans people in it. It was the most cishet white dude fucking universe in the world. That's probably why a bunch of nerds are butthurt over it being dead. (laughs) But I got a lot to love there. It's what I grew up on. It's bad, but I'll still pull out those books sometimes.
0: Reading these Star Wars books, being that kid getting the straight A's, what sort of kid were you?
1: I'd like to say I've changed a lot over the years, but I don't think I have... (laughs) I have always been an attention seeker, like a nerd that never hung out with anybody in particular that often, but was always being like a goof in class. The kind of, hey, look at me, look at me kind of goof. Like, I can say funny things. In addition to being smart, look how weird and goofy I am. And I really haven't shaken that too much, except now I do it with a lot more confidence and bravado. (laughs) So it makes me look cooler than I am. But the cool way to say it was like, oh, yeah, I was a class clown. But no, I was the class weirdo (laughs) that people would be like, oh, yeah, that's Jody. She's weird. (laughs) And then we keep walking. I mean, I had friends, but I kept to myself a lot. Read lots of books, got into comics, played a lot of video games. Watched a lot of really old television, because that's what you do in the 90s, before <laughs> there was actually things to watch. I grew up strange, but it's fine. I found my people.
0: As we all do on the internet.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> it's funny, I was just talking to Brett White about this, because he's very much into a like a particular kind of mid-20th century TV place, and it was weird because I'm a little bit older than you, and so possibly because of where I was in Canada and what I had access to. I managed to miss a lot of old TV. Just it wasn't on, like not on basic cable anyway. And so it was a situation where, yeah, there was a lot of like real touchstone things that I've never seen an episode of. But it's like, I know that because Bravo got a whole bunch of mystery shows when I was in (laughs) high school and my dad was always watching the Rockford Files and Macmillan and Wife and, and all of those other ones that I would watch lots of those, none of which I remember. But it's like, when I think of old TV, yeah, I picture Jim Rockford spinning his car to park in a particular spot. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, I don't need the Brady Bunch. I've got Jim Rockford.
1: I mean, you got the better deal. <laughs> I only got the sitcoms. And some of them were amazing. You know, I was obsessed mm. with the Addams Family and Batman 66 when I was a child. Because they were on a UHF station, almost like in a block together. That probably made a difference in retrospect growing up. Mm. <laughs>
0: Oh, see, I haven't mentioned this in a while in the Batman 66 side of things. Because I was in Canada and watching it, Batman 66 used to be on Radio Canada, which is the French CBC station. So it's like the national broadcaster, except for they would play it in dubbed French. And that was how I watched Batman 66. Except there was one episode where I don't even think it was Poison Ivy, because I don't think Batman 66 did Poison Ivy. Uh, no. Because it was one where Robin was being dragged into a giant Venus flytrap in a pool. And the episode ended on the cliffhanger that Robin had just been eaten by this Venus flytrap. It wasn't even like he was right on the edge and they cut away and when they would come back, he'd be saved. It was, no, the Venus flytrap went chomp and ate him. And that was the end of the episode. And I have still, to this day, never seen the second half of that episode. Because I was so shocked at age, what, uh, Lord knows, maybe age nine. And just being like, so Robin just died. Yeah, no, he's dead. And he's like screaming, oh, no oh Batman Uh oh, and in his overdubbed French Canadian voice and yeah so I'm like so that's how Robin dies on Batman 66 dark yeah wow
1: that's how Robin dies and then you know they had the fan vote you know they called in
0: <laughs> instead of
1: just it was the 60s so they had those like <laughs> rotary phones
0: took forever to dial in. it's funny because the one time I went in my adult life I went You know, I'm going to go look up what actually happened, but because I couldn't remember the episode and I couldn't remember the villain, it was hard to kind of lock it down. And the only thing I could find was a blog post from a guy who was basically describing the same experience that I had. Where he also, too, did of an afternoon and watched Robin die and never saw the resolution and how that scarred him. And I'm like, great. Well, now there's two of us. You know what it's like? It's like when you get an error message from a program on your computer and you Google it and the only thing that comes up is like a forum post from six years ago from a guy having the same problem. (laughs) It's exactly that. Without an answer.
1: (laughs) Yeah, my wild thing about Batman 66 is that I liked it more than current Batman. Like, I would have been watching this in the early 90s, and, like, Tim Burton Batman scared me. Like, I had fucking nightmares about penguins with rocket launchers. For real, actual nightmares. Oh, boy. I was, like, nine years old. Batman 66, my parents got me that tape, and I wore that shit out of the movie. Oh, the movie's great. I watched it. A hundred million times. I could like quote it backwards and forwards. I think that has informed a lot about how I view comics today. That when they get too self-serious, I'm out. Because my ideal Batman was like Adam West.
0: (laughs) Hey man, he punched people hard enough that they ceased to exist. They popped like balloons. That was intense.
1: They really did. (laughs) So I mean, I don't need comics to be completely silly. Although clearly I write largely comedy books myself. That said, though, for all people joke about the
0: shark-repellent bat spray, they neglect the fact that he is hanging from a helicopter with a shark half-eating his leg, and his response is to batter it about the head and before he goes for the
1: spray. He's very calm. He's very collected. Batman knows what he's about. You know, the UHF stations, which I can only say in that UHF station voice, was, if you're in Canada, you don't know that that was a real thing but yes all we did was watch uhf television for a long time because my family did not have cable so i watched really good shows like batman and adam's family and really bad shows like fucking bewitched or i dream of genie or some shit that's
0: actually a nice segue and i can make this work because when i was a kid we did have some of the higher channels that would have oddball stuff and if we were watching saturday morning cartoons but we were too early for the good cartoons. Like, let's say we'd woken up (laughs) at some stupid hour and the good stuff hadn't started. It would always be, like, various, you know, televangelist church services from other parts of North America. And it would be, like, local news affiliates. And then right at the beginning of what would be the Saturday morning kind of run, there would be two shows. There would be Astro Boy, for one. And then there would be, what I learned later, was an anime version of The Wizard of Oz. (laughs) <laughs> and I remember specifically watching like that opening where it would sort of fly over a rotoscoped farm and the big windmill would kind of turn and spin and become the logo to the point where now whenever I see that kind of windmill, I'm like, that's from the Wizard of Oz show. And I, I should have known at the time. I mean, I was a literal child, so I didn't. You could tell it was an anime because it took forever to do do anything. Like, you would have five episodes where you're still traveling through the Gnome King's tunnels. It's like, we come back, and we're still in the tunnel, and some stuff will happen, and then we'll be in the tunnel when you leave. So, what we had wanted to talk about initially when we talked about you coming on the show, is we wanted to talk about the Oz books. So, when did the Oz books enter your life?
1: Okay, well, first I want to say I have not seen the anime yet, and I'm very jealous that I should put it on my list. But I'm not a weeb, so what can I tell you? My grandfather got me the Oz books when I was... In probably like fourth grade, more or less. Once I became like a really voracious reader. I don't think he realized what kind of impact it would have on me. I mean, in the long term, he definitely didn't realize it. And he probably would not have given me the books had <laughs> had he known. Yeah, I had all 14 of L. Frank Baum's original books and paperback Del Rey's. People that know Oz books will know that series of Del Rey paperbacks. They have these like, you know how like every 80s fantasy novel has like a photorealistic painted cover? Oh, yes. Yeah, it had one of those It's by a dude whose name escapes me, but he did like hobbit cover art and stuff too no one famous just a dude that did a shitload of like fantasy paintings for book (laughs) covers in the 80s and that was like the oz that was in my brain is this weird fantasy footer realistic oz but yeah i had all 14 books read them cover to cover many times absolutely trashed those fucking paperbacks (laughs) because they resonated i know in retrospect why spoiler alert if you haven't been paying attention to my name and you're only hearing my voice i'm trans. I'm a trans lady, and the Oz books, they're real gay. And they're real trans. <laughs> I was about to say, they're gay as hell. <laughs> they're gay as hell. And you could say how much... L. Frank Baum may or may not have intended them to be gay as hell because it was the early 1900s, but he kind of knew what he was doing. <laughs> There's occasionally a questionable article here and there you'll find out where he like wrote something weird about Native Americans, and that is unfortunate. But he was also married to the daughter of one of the most fierce and famed feminist icons of the day, and he picked up a lot of lefty and feminist politics in like 1901. <laughs> There's a reason why, if you read all those books, all of 14 of Bomb's own books, it's always a girl protagonist. She's always the hero. She always solves all the problems. Obviously, you get book two, and book two has Tip in it, and it turns out Tip is a girl, actually. He just was not aware of that fact. <laughs> <laughs> Tip is a boy. He turns back into a girl and is a princess that rules Oz, and... That's a trans princess. There's no other reading of it. Oz has a trans princess, and it was like the year 1903. And look, it was a very long time before I put the pieces on that one. But yes, it was broadly influential to the point that where I will just say, if you really love all the Oz books, one, you're definitely some form of gay. Two, you're probably <laughs> trans. You should think about it. But no, they're really wonderful books. So you got all girl protagonists. You've got a weird socialist utopia, you've got trans princess, you've got scarecrow and ten woodsmen who absolutely fuck. (laughs) And they're just really inventive, delightful fantasies that outside of the first book, people have not read generally. I'm pretty sure I got hooked up with them because the movie, the MGM musical, was my favorite movie basically ever for a long time. It was like comfort food. If I was like homesick from school, they'd put it on the VCR. And so my grandfather's like, hey, you know, I read these when I was a kid. Here you go. <laughs> what if that movie, but it was quiet? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. And I also love musicals, so go figure. <laughs> but to change the course of my life in many ways, which is strange to think about. They're weirdly progressive. The art in them is gorgeous, except for the first book, which has terrible art by a terrible person. (laughs) He should feel bad. He really should. A lot of people, they aren't going to be familiar with the larger canon of it. I mean, I know a lot of people have seen, you know, Return of Oz. Oh, yes. Which is a mashup of the first and second books. But it leaves (laughs) out the trans princess part, which is a waste of fucking time. (laughs) Why are you making that movie without that part in it?
0: Well, if I remember correctly, it was to scare the bejesus out of young Lucas, if I remember correctly. Yeah, no, that's
1: that's basically the goal.
0: Those wheelers fall into the fucking deadly desert and turning into
1: sand. Yeah, they do, buddy. Yeah, it's fucked up. It's really a deadly desert. You touch it, you die. No one actually does it in the books. Because I maybe bombed it and want to see it want get evaporated, but they make it extremely clear that any living thing that touches that is going to explode,
0: yeah, that sign that says "Deadly desert is not whistling Dixie. it will kill a bitch
1: yeah, no, they're actually they're all different deserts too. there's the deadly desert, there's the shifting sands. What are the fucking other ones? I want pull up a map because of course there's a map <laughs> yes. there's the shifting sands, the impassable desert, the deadly desert, and the great sandy waste,
0: which so <laughs> L. Frank Baum going in the realms of sand haters alongside your Anakin Skywalker.
1: Oh my god, he hated sand so much. <laughs> <laughs> That's why everything bad is also on the other side of the sand. Uh, like the Gnome Kingdom. Uh-huh. The gnomes, they live underground in the dirt mine all day. They're evil, man. Hate sand. Can't trust him. No. But yeah, the Return to Oz is based almost entirely on the third book, when Dorothy comes back. It only has some elements of the second book, which is like Jack Pumpkinhead and shit. But that third book is genuinely horrific in many places. The third book really does have the fucking wheelers in it. It really does have a lady that takes off her head and swaps it around. Uh, Ah, (laughs) Mumby. It really does have the Gnome King turning everyone into, like, objects, which is also, in retrospect, some kind of weird fetish fiction online. It's, like, probably the closest to a horror that Bomb created. So it's weird, like, other than the weird electroshock therapy shit. Like, it's fairly accurately translated to film. It's genuinely just, like, I don't think people realize that the books were actually that, went that hard sometimes. (laughs) It's
0: like, oh, you're ruining our children's fiction. It's like, am I, though, or am I just transcribing it? Yeah, it's... (laughs) Adapting it.
1: It's actually very accurate to the book, other than the stuff they just popped in from book two instead. Except they didn't put in the best part of book two, but whatever. Luckily, I think a lot of people might have been exposed more to at least up to the sixth book because there was a recent Marvel comic series that was extremely dope. Oh, was that the, uh, was it the Scotty,
0: not Scotty Young? Who am I thinking of? Who drew it?
1: No, you are correct. Oh, it is too. Yeah, there you go. Uh, It was written by Eric Schanhauer, Huge Oz nerd, has written tons of Oz stuff, has also worked for both Marvel and DC in art capacities. He adapted the book's. To comic script, it was all drawn with some fucking Buck Wild Scotty Young art, which is amazing. And I think a lot of people at least got to discover the first six books that way, which I'm happy about. If you haven't, and you don't feel like reading an actual book, you should do that because they rule. It's Scotty Young, and you know, of course it rules. It looks amazing.
0: <laughs> I'm just looking this up now to remind myself that yeah, oh, that art's great.
1: It's amazing. I cannot believe it actually existed for a long as it did. Like Marvel Comics gave them that much leeway to just make that book is wild. I guess they wanted a family friendly property to have around but that should not exist and it does and I love it.
0: Yes yeah, the Marvelous Land of Oz is the name of the series.
1: Yeah but Bob wrote 14 books with some extra weird shit here and there that we shouldn't talk about. <laughs> I mean it's not bad it's just different and it's Dubiously canonical. Because, believe it or not, Oz has a canon thing <laughs> I did not realize until I was much older. There are 40 official Oz books. Jesus Christ. They went to the 60s. For a while, there was a new Oz book literally every year on Christmas. Like, it was a tradition. But they are dubious. Because Bomb dies. L. Frank Bomb dies. Which is unfortunate mm. for him. He was old. It's fine. But his publisher kind of owns Oz. Not quite a work for hire thing, but like they're allowed to make Oz books. And so they theoretically get permission from Baum's widow because she's like, fine, whatever. The kids want this. And so they get a lady named Ruth Plumly Thompson, who is the opposite of Baum. If Baum is like this wild feminist, like Ruth Plumly Thompson is like, your stern grandmother who thinks a woman should know her place in the household. <laughs> oh boy. A few things happen when she takes over. And she's actually a good writer and some of these books are good. So I will not disparage the entire line. But almost immediately, the protagonists become almost all boys. It journeys into more quote-unquote European fairy tale kingdoms, which Bomb never did. Bomb invented his own lands like whole cloth and set Oz in what is a distinctly American fairyland, whereas Ruth Plummer Thompson, where Thompson brought it into like more of a European fairy tale land, which is not particularly original. Every new book has like some new fucking kingdom. Like, how many kingdoms are allowed to exist in Oz? You already have a queen.
0: <laughs> There's only so far you can subdivide that pie.
1: Yeah, so I think eventually, I guess the modern analogy would be like under her guidance, Oz became kind of like Westeros in which there's like a ton of like little kingdoms inside, but like they all still report to King's Landing. Like, so I guess Ozma beautiful trans princess that she is, is kind of like Cersei Lannister. (laughs) Hmm. I'm going to think about that for a while.
0: So drinking wine and making terrible decisions.
1: Oh, she makes, oh my God. Yes. (laughs) This is a tangent. Now Ozma is a terrible ruler. (laughs) God bless her. I love her so much. Obviously, she's like one of the only trans characters in fiction. She's a trans lady princess who rules everything. It rocks. She's real dumb. (laughs) Dumb as a fucking post. My dear friend, Mary Ness, she is a fantasy writer. She did book reviews, like critical reviews, of every Oz book for Tor. And she coined the phrase Ozma fail, (laughs) which is that literally any time... Ozma is given a choice to lead her kingdom she makes the wrong one (laughs) and it leads to disaster like these books would not have stories if Ozma did not fuck up
0: (laughs) basic competence is not in her wheelhouse
1: no but you know it's an inherited ruler kind of thing you can't get rid of her (laughs) you cannot dethrone (laughs) her she's there forever and it's fine because everyone loves her they're just like maybe they don't have any direct comparisons to know how terrible a ruler she is she's very bad at it <laughs> in her defense she spent most of her life as a boy living on a farm doing chores, so it's not like she is prepared to rule a kingdom the world of international
0: politics may in fact be beyond her
1: yeah it may in fact be beyond her and that's why her kingdom is perpetually in danger they work it out eventually but yeah that's a tangent i just love Fail. But yeah, in Thompson's books, so yeah, European fairylands become to the forefront, always boy protagonist, which sucks hard. More racist? Oof. Racist stereotypes appear with far more frequency. And you could say it's, uh, it's, it's of the times, quote unquote. This is still the early 20th century. Except if you look at Baum's books, there are only two notable edits that most reprints ever make to his entire series. And they're very minor. Whereas if you read Thompson's books, you would have to delete half the book. <laughs> because there's some problematic elements that are all over the place. It's like hard to even talk about because you're like, um, I don't want to sound racist. Like Scarecrow falls down a hole and goes to the other side of the earth, which is China. Oh, and boy, are they early 20th century Chinese stereotypes? There's a later book in the series in which people are in slavery, but they're real happy about it for some reason. They're not great things in those books. Thompson wrote some good stuff it's mostly bad (laughs) (laughs)
0: because i feel like i read once upon a time when i went looking down a wiki rabbit hole ended up reading about the Oz series didn't Baum try to stop writing oz books at some point and was like goaded back into it
1: oh he stopped trying to write oz books all the time he hated it (laughs) because we have a lot in common he and i and that we have a hard time sticking to projects we just want to do something new Baum wrote the wizard of oz and that was it he wrote the wizard of oz then he went to write some other shit and then his publisher's like, uh, hey, The Wizard of Oz is one of the most popular books in the history of mankind. You should probably buy another one. And he's like, fucking fine, whatever. So he makes Land of Oz, and then he's done again.
0: He's like, there, I did the thing you wanted, that's all. And
1: they're like, ha ha, ha uh, no. They make him make Ozma of Oz, which is largely returned to Oz, like I said. It has the Nome King, all that shit. Uh, it has Dorothy Riz's turn. And that ends up being based largely on a musical he wanted to do so he just like adapted the stage musical into a book which happens more than once weirdly (laughs) so then he makes a fourth a fifth and a sixth book in like rapid succession and then he's done he's like cool i'm out peace and like that book ends like dorothy comes back and retires to the emerald city permanently just so you're not really worried about her uh, uncle henry and Aunt em she like brings them to oz and they get to live there forever. <laughs> it's, like, it's like a big happy ending for everybody. It's like done. It's like if Spider-Man brought Aunt May to live with him with the Avengers. <laughs> but it's like the end. And then he like fucks off for a few years. He tries to write other books. He writes two really good ones. Okay, he writes one okay one. And one really good one. One arguably his best book. He writes The Sea Fairies. Which introduces Trot and Captain Bill. And it's like a travel log of undersea kingdoms. And it's really boring. There's like no driving plot to it at all. It's just like people flew. <laughs> it's like a little girl and Old Sea Captain. Like Picture like a little sailor girl and the Gorn's Fishermen. They are given mermaid tails because why the fuck not? And they tour undersea kingdoms. And it's really boring because there's no plot. They just tour places. And then he wrote a sequel to that because he liked these characters a lot more than he liked Oz. <laughs> and it's called Sky Island. And Sky Island is fucking great. <laughs> It's like his best story novel book. And this is all related because it's all grandfathered into Oz canon, quote unquote. Anyway, Trot and Captain Bill, they go to an island in the sky with a magic umbrella because that's what you fucking do. They travel through like different kings in the sky. So it's like you'd think it was the same thing. But like instead of seeing like, oh, they're in the sky now, whatever. I'm genius. I'm L. Frank Baum. I know everything. (laughs) But this one has a lot more like political satire and allegory in it. And just a lot more interesting characters, and there's like a driving plot that I can't quite recall now. Um, it has a few returning characters from Oz, because Bomb wanted to like try to cash in a little bit. <laughs> but He's like, fuck, no one read Sea Fairies, I'm gonna try this, but I'm gonna put some Oz characters in it, see if anyone else bites, and they didn't. which is a shame (laughs) polychrome the rainbow's daughter who is like this flighty teenage girl of a dancer with like a brain cell in her entire head she's in the (laughs) fifth oz book she returns in sky island and all of a sudden polychrome the rainbow's daughter is like an attorney at law (laughs) (laughs) she just fucking knows everything about everything now it's wild these fail all of a other books kind of fail he writes some books under pseudonyms, like Edith Van Dyne. And these are all like for alternate series that go on forever. Like he writes a series of books for young girls called Aunt Jane's Nieces. Like Aunt Jane's Nieces at the farm. Aunt Jane's Nieces go to Spain or whatever the fuck it is. I mean, they're not great. They're like young girl teen trash, but not the good kind like the Babysitter's Club. But none of this sticks. So he has to make odds again. And he does it solely to make money. And it's sad, but he makes good things anyway. So it's like, all right, whatever. He surrendered to it. And then he writes seven, eight, eight more books. (laughs) I could do math. (laughs) He writes eight more books. And they're good books. And Trot and Captain Bill, who are my favorite characters in Oz, by the way, because they're in those fucking books I love. They show up in Oz in like the ninth book. And like he eventually creates a larger connected universe amongst all of his works. Eventually, like starting with like, you know, fucking Trot and Captain Bill get introduced and then all this other stuff that ambition, I respect because like every book he ever wrote basically exists within the shared universe, which is a pretty wild thing to be introducing in like, you know, the 1900s (laughs) (laughs) In Oz, you know, Trot and Captain Bill come in and then like John Doe and the Cherub come in from another failed book, which is also great because Chick the Cherub is in that book and Chick the Cherub is... A kid, and no one knows if it's a girl or a boy. It's just kind of an it. And that's kind of beautiful now. <laughs> it has no pronoun. Like, Chick the Cherub has no pronouns. It's just kind of like a non-binary person. It has Santa Claus, because Baum wrote The Life and Adventures of Santa Claus. So Santa Claus shows up in Oz. <laughs> it's fucking everything he ever wrote in the same shared universe, and it's bonkers and buck wild, and I love it. And then he dies. See, I don't know why. See, th- this to me
0: seems a lot more wholesome than... You know, if you look at something like, you know, Asimov tying foundation to Empire and to robots and everything, and it's just like, no, it's just, I liked this, and you guys didn't like this, so I'm taking this thing that I liked, and I'm putting it into the thing you liked, and now everyone will be happy, and I can still talk about and Captain Bill.
1: That is 100% exactly what he did, yes. (laughs) He was like, fuck y'all, fine, I'll make Oz books. But like, they're like quote-unquote Oz books sometimes. He's like, okay, fine. I will make this thing you swear you want, but I'm just going to make what I want and name it Oz, and you're going to like it anyway because that's what name's on the cover. <laughs> but yeah, no, there is a very wholesome degree to it, especially since so many books just end with a fucking party. Like the fifth book ends with a party, like a big party, like a banquet. <laughs> and the banquet is where like Santa Claus shows up. And like Queen ZZ of X shows up, who is also from another book that no one cared about. And like all these people show up. But later books, the ninth Oz book, Scarecrow and Oz, is literally just like a third Trot and Captain Bill book, only Scarecrow's there. The tenth book, I believe, is Rinkitink and Oz. And that is literally just an entirely other book that was just named King Rinkitink. And it did not take place in Oz. <laughs> <laughs> he just named it Rinkitink in Oz And boom He had a new Oz book Which is fucking genius
0: I'm just picturing it like It's a sign outside of a theater And someone walks up and nails on a board That says in Oz <laughs> And it's like there you go
1: That's all it took Okay he did do one thing Like the literally the only thing he does To Rinkitink in Oz To make it quote unquote in Oz Is that there is like one final chapter completely tacked on out of nowhere in which Dorothy shows up and she's like hey characters of this completely unrelated book I'm here to save you let's go to Oz and it's the last chapter of the entire book she's completely in my face (laughs) and then like you can really see the seams start to show that's a great book by the way because it's not an Oz book <laughs> and then there is TikTok and Oz, which is a book adaption of a musical he wrote called TikTok, The TikTok Man of Oz. But The TikTok Man of Oz is itself an adaption of Ozma and Oz. <laughs> so, like, the 11th book in the Oz series is an adaptation of an adaptation of a book that was already in this series. <laughs>
0: As part of pandemic times, I have reverted to reading mass market paperback sized like 1970s editions of like Michael Moorcock, Elric books and stuff, (laughs) which by the way, talking about cover art, the cover art on those rules.
1: Oh, yeah.
0: But I did in looking through Michael Moorcock's incredibly huge Wikipedia page about the books he's written, because he wrote a lot. At one point, he just makes I think it's a Jerry Cornelius book, where he just adapts one of his Elric books and just changes the names. It's like, this guy is now this guy. And this guy is also this guy. And instead of it being a sword, it's a weapon. And it's in space instead of being in this weird Hyborian realm. And yeah, I'm just going to release that book again. And it was a bestseller. And I'm like, you got to admire the sheer audacity of, yeah, you know what? I'm going to adapt. Like you said, I'm going to adapt a play that's based on a book I already wrote. And I'm going to turn that into another book. And guess what? You'll buy it.
1: <laughs> yeah. I'm in awe of the moxie. You have to just appreciate the sheer moxie of it. That's also a pretty good book. He chooses enough stuff to make that actually a pretty good book still. <laughs> because he's still a good writer, even if he does not care.
0: <laughs> Which is the real skill you want, you know? Yeah. I want to be able to bring as much like of my power and talent to something I don't give a shit about as something that I deeply love. I think that's the true mark of a godly level of talent, is to be like, anyone can write about something they love. Tell me about something you hate. (laughs) And on that weird and kind of nihilistic note, I think we do, in fact, have to wrap up. So, Jody, if people wanted to find your stuff on the internet, where would they go?
1: They would go primarily to TroutCave.net. That is the hub of all of my comic book work. And as well, it has links to my web comics there as well. If you want to talk to me, I'm on Twitter at LongTallJody. That's also where you find me on... Do I have other social media at this point? Nah, it's just Twitter. Just talk to me on Twitter. You're on Letterboxd, I think. <laughs> okay. Aren't you? Yeah, if you want to know what movies I'm watching, which is infrequently, I'm also on Letterboxd, also at LongTallJody. I need more Letterboxd people. <laughs> look i really want to watch more movies but i'm not the person that can watch a million movies i have to like sit down in like a f- frame of mind like really dedicated mm-hmm. time it just doesn't happen that often
0: all right jody well thanks so much for coming on uh, i now kind of want to go and look up some non-odds Frankelbaum books to see if they're any good <laughs> To Jody Trapman for her time. For Jody's signature cocktail, I asked her what sort of flavors she liked, and she admitted that she didn't really drink all that much. But when she did, it was usually a cider, and I can work with that. So I present the Polychrome. In a shaker full of ice, combine one and a half ounces of gin, a third of an ounce of lemon juice, a dash of orange bitters, and a pinch of cinnamon. Shake vigorously and strain into a cocktail glass. Top up with 4 ounces of sparkling cider. Why stay home when you can kick down the door to a brand new universe? Enjoy! in Ride, New South Wales, Australia, and is written, hosted, and edited by yours truly, Lucas Brown. New episodes are meant to be released every second Friday, but I don't know if you've heard, but Sydney is entering its seventh week of lockdown, and I say again the Delta variant can suck it. If you'd like to be a guest in the show, simply send an email to you at gmail.com and tell us what you'd like to talk about. You can follow the show on Twitter at themath of you and you can follow my Wacky Adventures at Lokified, L-O-K-I-F-I-E-T, on Twitter and Instagram. If you have a few dollars kicking around and would like to directly support the show, you can go to patreon.com slash and pledge as little as a dollar a month. Recently, because people have been pledging enough, I've been releasing bonus episodes about everything I've been reading, watching, playing, and enjoying all month. It's actually been a fun little exercise, and it makes me enjoy those things the more that I can look back and say, yes, that particular thing was a real bright spot for me. Patrons get early access to episodes, bonus cocktail recipes, and I would really just really appreciate it a whole bunch. If you'd like to support non-monetarily, you can go to Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Spotify, anywhere you want, and leave a five-star rating. It helps people find the show. You can also leave a nice review, and I'll read it out. Won't that be nice? If you like the music i play on the show, there's a Spotify playlist for that. You can go to bit.ly slash themathofyou with capitals at the beginning of each word to find all the music I've ever played on the show, including this one. It's Long Way Home by Mates of State. It's from their Crushes mixtape, which is all covers, and it's honestly one of my favorite little albums. I update the playlist as soon as the episode goes live, so make sure you subscribe and get that new music in your ears. Next week, I have two guests. I'll be talking to JoJo Seams and Andrew Isla, who have both been on the show before and are some of my favorite people, about what we do in the shadows. Join me, won't you?